This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Lord, all we desire from you this evening is your presence among us. Please come, send your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Seven miles as the crow flies from my home in Tunisia are the ancient ruins of a very significant Roman villa. In the year 258 CE, in the courtyard of this spacious Roman villa, the Christian bishop of Carthage was sentenced to death. The bishop's name was Cyprian, and the Roman governor of Carthage who pronounced the sentence was the inhabitant of that village, holding court in his courtyard, if you will. Once the sentence was handed down, Cyprian was immediately uh, escorted to the place of his execution. As he processed through the city, flanked by Roman soldiers, word began to spread uh, that the law had finally caught up with Bishop Cyprian. He was marched through the cobblestone streets of Carthage, and his entourage began to grow as Christians and non-Christians alike joined the procession. In North Africa during the mid-third century, Cyprian was a rock star. The faithful followers of Jesus were proud to call him uh, their bishop because his sermons, his writings, his teachings were already being circulated throughout the known world, and uh, they put Carthage on the map. Many non-Christians revered him as well because, among other things, a few years earlier, uh, as Carthage suffered and, and groaned from the pains of an outbreak of the plague, Cyprian had led an initiative of care. While the Roman authorities hid from the plague behind the walls of their estates, Cyprian had instructed his army of Jesus followers to stroll the streets and survey the city to collect the dead and attend to the sick. And on this clear, sunny September day in 258, Cyprian was as well-known and certainly more liked than the ruler who had just sentenced him to death. Cyprian's uh, death march terminated on a field on top of a cliff overlooking uh, the Mediterranean Sea. The entourage that joined the procession gathered around him. Additional townspeople uh, came out, out to watch. Children climbed the trees around the edges of the field to get a better look. And there, in front of hundreds, possibly thousands of people, Cyprian, the bishop of Carthage, was beheaded. The real message of this story is that this execution could have been avoided. Roman persecution of Christians was severe at times, uh, but for several years, Cyprian had lived in exile in a secret location outside of the city. And everyone was happy with this arrangement. Cyprian was happy with the arrangement because he was still alive. The, the Christians in the city were happy with the arrangement because they still had a bishop. And the authorities, the Roman authorities were happy with the arrangement because they didn't want to have to uh, go through a public trial of a popular figure and answer for it to Rome in case it goes wrong. And so everyone was happy with this situation. 
But Cyprian found himself in the situation where he was a pastor to people being persecuted, yet hiding from persecution himself. And he found this to be an untenable situation. One of the distinguishing qualities of the North African church was its willingness to assume risk. In fact, uh, it was sometimes construed as an eagerness for martyrdom. But there was this willingness to assume risk. Beginning with the Colosseum execution of saints Perpetua and Felicitas, to the doctrines developed by the Carthage native son Tertullian, who was the one to coin the phrase, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, to the hard line that the North Africa church took on those who capitulated under persecution, the church in Carthage established a reputation uh, for a specific type of high-octane Christianity. And it served them well. Uh, Many of the church fathers, some very significant church doctrines, and in fact, the decision of which books to include in the New Testament all came out of the church of North Africa. It was uh, a church that didn't just assume risk, but rejoiced in the possibility of risk. It was this kind of church in part because of how Cyprian had led them and taught them, and he knew that to be a pastor to this group of high-octane Christians, he had to come out of hiding, even if it meant his almost certain death. Now, at this point, you might be asking yourself a question. Wait, Frank, don't you, like, live and minister in a place that's, like, 100% Muslim? And, like, if... The church was so great at one time. Uh, <clears throat> where is it today? Is it completely gone? Did it totally die? Uh, well, that's a different story, and it's one I don't have time to tell today. But watch this space. Um, actually, in June, Friday, June 14th, I'm going to be telling that exact story and answering that exact question. What happened to the Church of Carthage? And what can we learn um, about missions as a result of it? So Friday, June 14th, but I can't answer that now. So here ends the shameless self-proportioned portion of the sermon. Uh, during Easter, we uh, hear a reading from the book of Acts every, uh, every week. And today we read about a zealot named Saul who experiences a conversion and becomes a different kind of zealot named Paul. Um, but this story about Paul is as much about a man named Ananias as it is anything else. And Ananias, like Cyprian, was a man who was willing to take risks. Ananias was a part of a Christian community in Damascus. And uh, this church in Damascus was at least a part a result of the dispersion that happened after the death of Stephen. Ananias himself may have fled uh, Jerusalem after Stephen's death, and if not him, then certainly many of his brothers and sisters did. And news traveled, we know that news traveled between Jerusalem in the south 
and Damascus in the north. News reports traveled north from Jerusalem to Damascus, and people like Ananias were hearing that Christians were being beaten in an effort to make them deny their faith. But these were balanced out by news reports that traveled in the other direction. And people like Saul were hearing that those who fled Jerusalem were making Damascus their new home. And more news reports would travel north that people were serving jail times for following Jesus. And other news reports traveled south that the church in Damascus was growing. And more news reports would travel north that um, an expedition was going to be sent out against the church in Damascus. And other news reports went south that Damascus was quickly becoming the new center for Christianity. And finally, the church in Damascus received a news report that this expedition had launched and it included uh, uh, an inquisitor named Saul and a band of soldiers. And it, they carried with them the authority to arrest anyone who, uh, with, who called themselves a Christian or followed Jesus. The Christians in Damascus were scared, and rightfully so. Before Ananias received his uh, vision, he had no idea what happened to Saul on the road. He couldn't have known what uh, God had planned. He had every reason to be afraid when uh, the Lord gave him an invitation. Go to this place and pray for this guy named Saul. That was the invitation. And Ananias replied with a, characteristically human response. Yes, but. Yes, Lord, but uh, this guy came here to arrest people like me. Uh, it's a suicide mission. Then God gently and graciously pushed Ananias to trust him. Ananias, I've chosen this guy for something special. I have, I have this under control. Please go. Then, at that moment... Ananias chose to exhibit faith courage. He willingly went into a blood-curdling, precarious environment. He chose the more dangerous and more exciting option. He assumed risk. And miracles happened. Because Ananias had the faith courage to assume risk. Paul was rescued from the miry depths of hate and violence. His blindness was healed. The Gentiles got a new apostle, and the world would never be the same. Ananias could have chosen not to go, and God would have worked out another way. He, he, he could have decided not to exhibit faith courage. And he still would have been a lover of God. He still would have been a follower of Jesus. He could have chosen not to exhibit this faith courage and assume the risk. And he still would have been a leader in the church. But we wouldn't be reading about him today. I wonder how many times Cyprian read this passage in Acts before... He chose to exhibit the
the faith courage of Ananias himself. It's easy for us to imagine Cyprian going through all the same steps. God giving him an invitation. You know, Cyprian, it might be best for your flock if you came out of exile. And Cyprian responding with a yes, but. Yes, Lord, but uh, look, it could mean certain death. And the Lord gently pushing back, Cyprian, will you trust me? I'm in control. And then Cyprian chose to exhibit the faith courage of Ananias. It may be that you and I would never have made the same choice that Cyprian made. It may be that you and I would uh, never have assumed the same amount of risk that Ananias did. But I'm guessing that most of us recognize these steps. I would bet that most of us at some level have either experienced or witnessed this dance between God and the faithful disciple. A dance that kind of goes like this. Our Lord invites us to something exciting and risky. And we initially respond with a yes, but. And the Lord gently pushes us to trust him. And then we choose to exhibit the faith courage of Ananias. Ananias had no idea what was waiting for him in that house on uh, Straight Street. He did, however, hear the Lord inviting him to something risky. He pushed back initially, responding with a yes, but. Ultimately, though, he was assured that God was in control and he trusted him. Ananias knew the dance. He did the dance. And in the end, he chose to exhibit faith courage. I am sure that there are many of us in this room today who know the dance who do the dance. I've done the dance. My wife and I heard God's invitation to serve him overseas even before we were married. We embraced the invitation, at least most of it. We were willing to assume the risk, at least most of it. It was exciting. Uh, and as we prepared to go overseas, we would often refer to this one particular uh, passage from 2 Corinthians. I'm going to read it to you. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, but as servants of God, we commit ourselves in every way. By great endurance, in affliction, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God. We loved this passage. We referred to it all the time. We felt like this passage was a, a little piece of God's invitation to us to this great adventure, part of his calling to us. We felt like it was a great reminder that involved assuming some risks. And we were honored to be invited by God, and we, were, and we associated this particular passage with that invitation. And we responded in the 
characteristically human way of saying, yes, Lord, but riots? We could handle the hardships and calamities. We were even okay with the hunger and the sleepless nights. But riots? Surely, Lord, there's some way that we can do this thing without the riots. Well, we assume the risk. And uh, guess what? It took some time, but eventually there were riots. Uh, on one occasion, I turned down a street and I walked straight into a loud, angry, anti-American demonstration. At least a thousand men. During the revolution in 2011, oh, were there riots. We could hear from our home the rhythmic thumping of outraged crowds. And we could tell when they were coming closer. From our balcony, we saw the, the tops of the flames from fires that had been set. We heard the crackling of rapid gunfire. On one occasion, I was close enough to the riots to experience the taste of tear gas. And it was uh, during these times that miracles happened. We connected with people around uh, us in deep ways because of this shared experience. We were able to be there for others who were scared and comfort them with the love of God. Um, we made ourselves available to those who were in need amid crisis. We were able to open our homes to people who uh, wanted to flee because it felt unsafe or people who needed food. But we had to first assume the risk. It was a miraculous time. Sometimes when we do the dance, miracles happen. Many times uh, I hear people ask the question, what is the difference between the heroes of our faith, like St. Francis or Tyndale or Bonhoeffer, and the plethora of other Christians who surrounded them in the exact same situations? And the answer is, they did the dance. They knew how to recognize God's invitation, and they chose to assume the risk. How do we grow in our faith to the next level? How do we become a radical disciple of Jesus? How do we graduate from a regular church attender to someone with a captivating and contagious testimony? The answer is the same. It's not theological education. It's not to know more or to learn more. It's not experience or age or maturity. The answer is do the dance. Because sometimes when we do the dance, miracles happen. God issues us an invitation. And this can look like a lot of different things, this invitation from God. It might be God saying to you, you know, you should get to know your neighbors. Because how are your neighbors ever going to know me if they've never met you? Or it might be God telling us to start a Bible study at our workplace. Or maybe God's telling you to move to a certain part of town where the needs are greater because you can have more of an effect. Or perhaps the Lord's telling you, inviting you to lead a ministry at church. And in this dance, the first response is almost always, yes, but. 
yes, but uh, Lord, I, I'm too shy to do that. It's not my personality. That's not what I'm like. Yes, Lord, but uh, gosh, I don't know. I might be overlooked for promotion if I'm labeled as some sort of Jesus freak at work. Yes, Lord, but uh, the value of my house won't appreciate if I move to that part of town. And I, uh, Yes, Lord, but I just have so many other things to do. And you know, God understands our yes buts. He does. And in step three, however, he, uh, of this dance, he pushes back a little bit, gently, encouraging us to trust him. And then we have to make a choice. A conscious, deliberate choice to exhibit the faith courage of Ananias. I guarantee you that God does not hold it against us when we do not choose the path of faith courage. He doesn't hold, us, hold it against us any more than you and I would hold it uh, against our children if they chose not to go off the high dive. Sometimes we simply aren't ready to assume the risk. Our Lord won't hold that against you. But neither will he stop issuing you the invitation. There's not one person here tonight who won't receive repeated invitations from God to do something risky, to do something exciting, to do something outrageous, to do something dangerous. Look out for those invitations. And when we receive these invitations, we'll almost always respond at first with a yes but. But that's okay, it's part of the dance. And God will then gently push back on you a little bit, remind you that he's in control, and you'll need to make the choice of whether or not to exhibit the faith courage of Ananias. And sometimes when we do the dance, miracles happen. And I have to tell you that the risks are real. These aren't <clears throat> fake risks. There might be an inquisitor with the authority to arrest you on the other side of that door. You might make a fool of yourself. You might fail. You might lose money or, or miss out on the opportunity to make money. You might begrudgingly learn what uh, tear gas tastes like. You might find yourself on a cobblestone road marching towards your own execution. But sometimes when we do the dance, Miracles happen. Amen.